The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Previously, I spoke with Sebastian Malaby when he released his book, uh, The Man Who Knew, all about Alan Greenspan. Uh, I would argue that Greenspan wasn't the man who knew. We avoided talking about anything having to do with the maestro or the Federal Reserve or interest rates or inflation, and instead spent the full conversation discussing Malaby's new book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. I was uh, so, so fan of the Greenspan book because I'm not a fan of Greenspan. I loved Malaby's prior book, More Money Than God, all about hedge funds. And and this book is, is, I think, his best yet. The history of Silicon Valley told from uh, the perspective of a historian. He, he really brings a very different lens and filter uh, to looking at how Silicon Valley developed, all the things that are so different relative to um, traditional investing, East Coast investing versus West Coast invest- investing, how they embrace risk, what a power law is, while you're, why you're not looking for diversification, why you expect most of your investments to fail. And it's just a handful of companies that are responsible uh, for, for the vast majority of your returns and hence the tendency to spread a lot of around, money around on a lot of companies and a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of startups looking for that unicorn that's going to really be the driver of your fund's uh, returns. Uh, I really, really like the book. And, and I don't just say that. I, I, I thought it was tremendous. I plowed through it over a couple of weekends in the dead of winter. Uh, I think you'll not only like the book, but you'll enjoy the conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Sebastian Malaby. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Sebastian Malaby. He is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in editorial writing. He has been a columnist at The Washington Post, The Financial Times, The Economist, The Atlantic. He is the author of multiple books, including The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, More Money Than God, All About Hedge Funds, and The Making of a New Elite. His latest book is out February 1st, The Power Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of a New Future. Sebastian Malaby, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be with you, Barry. Great to have you again. Last we spoke was about five years ago uh, after the Greenspan book came out. And I have to tell you, I've really enjoyed your book on venture capital. But before we get to that, I want to just, for people who may not be familiar with your career, uh, just do a little background. How How did you get started in journalism, and, and what were you covering early in your career? 
Well, I joined The Economist magazine right out of college, and I had stints as the Africa correspondent, uh, the Tokyo correspondent. Then a bit later, I was Washington bureau chief. Uh, I had some time in London um, when I was covering sort of fund management and finance. Um, uh, and I was in South Africa, actually, when Nelson Mandela walked out of jail. And I always say my career has been downhill ever since. <laughs> really intriguing. <laughs> so so you were covering apartheid. You also wrote a book on that. How did you pivot towards markets and technology and the economy? Well, it was one of those sort of unplanned step-by-step journeys. Um, uh, as I was saying, you know, I was, I was covering South Africa. Mandela came out of jail. It was incredibly exciting. And that was the springboard um, for my first book, After Apartheid, which was about what would happen next in, in, in South Africa. And I wrote that, um, you know, as a sort of young man in a hurry in my late 20s um, and didn't write another book for, for, you know, maybe a dozen years or so. And then I wrote a book about the World Bank and development economics. And so there was an overlap with the previous book. It was, you know, had a bit of Africa in it. And it was about lifting countries out of poverty and development. And, but there was also this other side to it, which was the economics. Um, and that was kind of the, the segue to then writing uh, about finance. I'd done a lot of financial journalism, but I hadn't written books about finance. But I, I, I took on this challenge of writing about hedge funds. And I spent a good long time on that. And uh, all of my books, you know, the, the reason I get to come on your show um, at these five-year intervals is I need to speed up the metabolism so I get to talk to you more often. Well, I'm um, going to tell you, I, I think the reason is you put so much time and effort and research into the book that it's not the sort of thing that I, I'm always impressed with the, the people who can crank out a book every 12 to 18 months. It's pretty clear that you put a ton of, of heavy lifting and deep, deep background, and and I'm looking at a uh, advanced copy, so I see all the footnotes of which and endnotes of which there are thousands, but I don't see the index. I have to imagine um, you put a ton of work, uh, research work, into this book. Yes, I mean uh, my view is it's better to write uh, a book that's really worth the reader's time. Um, and to take my time over it uh, and really get it right. I mean, I'm a perfectionist by nature, and I indulge that um, side of my character when I'm when I'm doing these books. So, um, more money than God. The hedge fund book took me, you know, four or five years. The next book was about Alan Greenspan, so that was another slice of financial history instead of public markets. It was central banking, um, and now I've taken another, you know, five years or so. To, to do a deep dive into technology investing and venture capital. Um, so, um, you know, one thing leads to the next. So let's start talking about the power law, and we'll, we'll get to exactly what that is in a bit. I want to start, just so, so listeners have an idea of how far back your research goes, to 1957 and your discussion of what you call liberation capital or defection capital, which is really a group of folks working for a particular company in California, and they decide they've had enough and they want to go out on their own. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of, of that adventure. 
Sure. I mean, liberation capital is a term I use to capture the absolutely key thing about venture capital and, and, and what they were doing right at the beginning of the history of venture capital. So back in the 1950s, it was the time of big business, big labor, big government, and so on. And, and people who worked in these big bureaucratic institutions were famously profiled in a book of the time, Organization Man. And you know the title kind of tells you what you need to know, all about um, loyalty to the organization. And then in 1957, along comes this, uh, this financier, Arthur Rock, who is really the pioneer of West Coast venture capital, and he shows up in the valley and he, he liberates eight scientists who are working at one tech company they don't like and they want to leave that company. And he raises capital for them so that they can set up their own company. And that's called Fairchild Semiconductor. And really that liberation of those, those eight scientists, and it was such a radical thing to do at the time, they were known as the eight traitors, like leaving your former employer is a treachery. Um, and, and from the time that they got that money from Arthur Rock and they were able to be liberated and to found their own company, you know, from that moment on, the old corporate ideas about hierarchy and loyalty and lifetime employment and retiring with a gold watch, all that stuff, it was forced onto the defensive. And you know, talent had been liberated and a revolution had begun. So I want to get into some of the details of, of exactly how this talent was liberated. But to paint the broader picture, there's a data point in the book that's really quite astonishing. So Fairchild dates back to 1957. By 2014, well over half a century later, 70%, 7-0 of the 70% of the publicly traded companies in Silicon Valley trace their lineage back to Fairchild. That's really an astonishing data point. And what happened um, to explain that data point is, is that once Arthur Rock, that father of venture capital, had sort of liberated the eight scientists to set up Fairchild, he then turned around and liberated some of the members of that group of eight another time. You know, he would spin them out, you know, raise capital, move them to some other company that he'd invested in. And at the end of the story in 1968, um, he liberated even the two leaders of Fairchild, and they set up Intel with capital raised by Arthur Rock. And one of the um, eight scientists was uh, Eugene Kleiner, and I don't want to jump ahead too much in the story, but I mean, Kleiner set up Kleiner Perkins, which in turn invested in all these other Valley companies. So the point is that, you know, one liberation led to others, and it set off a kind of Cambrian explosion of all these startups in Silicon Valley. And I think it really illustrates the point that if Arthur Rock had not come along and financed Fairchild Semiconductor, the Valley as we know it today might never have developed. Huh, that that's really intriguing. One one of the really fascinating observations you make in the book is the difference between the East Coast form of I don't even know if I could call it venture capital. It's really more private equity or asset management. Uh, it, it's very risk averse. It's very diversified. Uh, it, it's a little slow, and and maybe I can even use the word timid. Whereas the West Coast is much more aggressive. Uh, to what 
do you ascribe those really radical differences in risk tolerance? Well, I think the East Coast, um, I mean, as you're, as you're indicating, had a whole financial tradition. Um, and uh, if we're thinking about the, the late 50s, we need to remember that that financial tradition was still shaped by the memory of the 1929 crash and the depression in the 1930s. And basically, you know, hadn't really quite recovered um, into the 1950s. I mean, people were, you know, the companies were called Fidelity, they were called Prudential. The very names signaled um, sort of responsibility and risk aversion. And so although there was some venture capital around Boston uh, and indeed in New York, it was less risk-hungry uh, than than the West Coast kind. Uh, I remember speaking to uh, one of the Boston, one of the early Boston venture capitalists, and he told me kind of proudly um, that he had made I don't know forty bets or something in his career on different forty for forty different startups, and only one of them had lost money. And he presented this as a great achievement. Of course, if you said that to a West Coast venture capitalist, the response would be. Well, you're a loser. I mean, you, you're not taking enough risk. If only one of them fails, you're being way too timid. You could never really make a, you know, 10x plus return if you're not taking, uh, not sticking your neck out more than that. So there is a different financial culture. I think it began with Arthur Rock, uh, as I've been saying. I think he just he just had a willingness to back outsiders, and he was very quick and very early. To understand, you know, the key point that I think the East Coast didn't didn't get and the West Coast did get, and that was precisely the power law, the idea that um, the way to win in venture capital is not to avoid losses because startups are intrinsically risky and you will lose money on lots of them. The way to make money is to make sure that when you win, you win really big. It, this is a home run business. This is not a business where you try to make, you know a 5% gain, a 10% gain here and there. This is about swinging for the fences, and the best kind of defense is offense. And Arthur Rock would, would say this. I mean, I went back and read his speeches that he gave in the early 60s, um, and he was pretty clear about saying, you know, it's not about whether I lose on some of my bets. I mean, you can only lose one times your money. What matters is the bets where you make, you know, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times what you what you put in. That's the whole game. Huh. And the other factor that I thought was really fascinating that I was aware of but didn't realize how important it was, uh, but you do a nice job of explaining this in the book, California does not allow non-compete agreements uh, for corporations relative to their employees. If you want to quit McDonald's and walk across the street to Burger King, the law doesn't prevent you from doing that. That was a very different setup than a lot of other states, especially back east, uh, had. D tell us what the lack or the illegality of non-competes did to the culture in Silicon Valley. Well, I think a key insight about how innovation happens and why some uh, innovation clusters are more productive and creative than others is that you've got you've to circulate people inside the cluster. It's all about, you know, you've got, a, you've got a certain amount of human talent, engineers, marketing executives, um, people who know how to make startups work. 
And these people are conducting experiments. Each, each startup is an experiment. And each is a long-shot experiment because the, the majority are going to fail. And so the whole game here is that that network, that ecosystem needs to circulate talent rapidly um, in order to move the people into the right places uh, where they can be, the, the talent can be best put to use. Um, and if you've got a, a startup and it's raised some capital, normally, um, you know, the capital is enough runway to last, say, six months, nine months. And then you identify the, the talent you want to hire with that money. If you had to wait for six months because of some non-compete agreement before that person joins your startup, well, then you've run out of runway before they even get there. Right. And so the ability to hire people and have them move in quickly is key. And um, that's what uh, California law makes easier because you cannot enforce non-competes very easy, easily in, in, in California court. And that's different to most states in the U.S. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And to put this into context about how easy it was to set up a company and move forward, Bud Coyle, when, when the traitorous eight were ready to leave and set up Fairchild, he pulled out 10 crisp $1 bills and proposed that all eight men should sign each of them, and that was their contract during the early days of Liberation Capital. Was it really that right. simple? Here, all of us, let's sign a dollar bill, and that'll loosely be our, our agreement? I mean, so Bud Coyle was uh, Arthur Rock's partner on the Fairchild financing. And uh, when you're right. When he and Rock reached the agreement with the eight Fairchild scientists, they all signed dollar bills. And of course, it was symbolic, right? This was not a real contract. But I thought it was a pretty vivid signal, right? Because it's partly about the informality of venture contracts that, although I think they had another contract, a real contract, which was drawn up a bit later, in terms of kind of the blood bond between them all, you know, signing that dollar bill was, was the sign that they were all in. And so it's partly the informality and partly the way that fundamentally all of the invention and entrepreneurship in the Valley is founded on the financing that underwrites the risk. So the fact that, you know, what they signed was money <laughs> struck me as quite a vivid symbol of how Silicon Valley got going. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit uh, exactly what power laws are. Most of us are familiar with the bell curve or more traditional Gaussian distribution that are kind of evenly spread out. It's a nice, smooth distribution. Power laws are not like that. T could you explain to us what exactly are power laws relative to what we're usually used to? Right. So with a bell curve or normal distribution, nearly all the observations are close to the average. So a good example is, you know, the average American man is five feet, 10 inches tall. And two thirds of American men are within three inches of that. 
So, you know, there are some basketball players who are way more or whatever, but it's, it's rare. Uh, and stock market returns are another example of something which isn't perfectly normal, but it's kind of approximately close. And really wild market swings you know, happen, and that's why we have crashes. Um, but they're actually statistically pretty unusual. You know, most of the time, the market is just oscillating a little bit um, from day to day. Uh, but some things in life absolutely do not follow anything like that normal distribution. For example, whereas the height of people is a normal distribution, the wealth of people is a power law distribution, meaning... Um, you know, uh, some people will be just massively richer than the average and will pull the average up um, or take academic citations. You know, some small fraction of academic papers capture the lion's share of all the sites. Uh, and these skewed distributions are called power law distributions. And uh, that's what you get with, with venture capital and startups. Most startups fail. And the investor's return is zero. They lose all their money. Um, a few, like maybe 10%, 20%, depending slightly on, on you know, which period of time you're looking at, how strong the tech market is and what have you. But a few are going to just take off into the stratosphere and have this sort of exponential rise. And so that, that minority, I mean, it's a bit like if you think about the cinema, the, the analogy of the cinema and, you know, the tallest guy walks out, uh, it's not going to change the average height in the cinema very much. But if you're talking about the wealth of the people in the cinema and Jeff Bezos is in the cinema and he walks out, it's going to radically change the average. And, and that's what you've got, you're, you're looking at with, with, with venture capital. There's a few absolutely star companies um, which dominate uh, the returns that venture capitalists are going to earn. And once you understand that, it means, as a venture capitalist, you can't just invest by going for a modest return uh, while protecting your downside. The whole game is to get a piece of the exponential winners. Venture capital is a game of grand slams. Um, and, and I think that power law is so central to the way that venture capitalists have to think that that's why I took it as my title, uh, the power law. Huh. So, so to put some... Numbers on this, venture capital firm Horsley Bridge ran an analysis over the investments they made over the course of, it looks like, 30 years into 7,000 startups that they backed. And it turned out that only 5% of those, those startups uh, generated 60% of the returns over the total fu funds. And some other people have said it's even more lopsided. Peter Thiel pointed out the biggest secret in venture capital is that the best investment in a successful fund usually equals or outperforms the entire rest of the fund. So, so that sounds like that is really very skewed compared to uh, what we typically think of, at least in a diversified portfolio. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of diversification was something – that basically got thrown out of the window um, when venture capital was invented. Um, you know, if you think about the normal idea, you make a lot of bets, you try to diversify, um, you're thinking about your risk-return balance. Um, that kind of public market mentality 
is totally alien to venture capital investing, where you're making concentrated, uh, illiquid bets in actual companies that you can't exit. Um, and they're either going to do incredibly well and take off, uh, or they're going to, you know, run into the ground. Um, and so, and you know, they're all in tech, so it's not diversified. And in fact, a lot of venture capitalists specialize personally in some subsection of tech. You know, they're, they're SaaS VCs, or they are, um, you know, med tech, uh, medical technology VCs, or whatever it is. So they are completely the opposite of diversified. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, it's all in, you know, boots, boots on the ground, <laughs> no, no, no hedging at all. Um, and in a way, you know, that's what's partly what sort of attracted me to, to writing about venture capital. It's just so different to public market investing um, uh, uh, in, in, in many ways, but that's one of them. So uh, I really like the way the various stages of venture capital are elucidated in the book. Uh, you started with liberation capital. Let's talk a little bit about the next phase of, of, of venture investing, hands-on activism and stage-by-stage -stage finance. Let, let's discuss each of these. Right. So after Arthur Rock established the idea of liberation capital, the next phase is the 1970s, and this was marked by the founding of two famous partnerships, both in 1972, Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins. And as you say, the first innovation that these guys brought was really to be hands-on, to, to roll your sleeves up and get involved in the shaping of the company. Um, and one of Sequoia's first investments was in the pioneering video game maker Atari. They had a game called Pong. It was pretty simple. You paddled, uh, you moved the paddle up and down and, and uh, you tried to kind of, you know, hit the, hit the little dot on the screen that was coming towards the paddle. Uh, and I think the instructions were basically one line, avoid missing ball for high score. <laughs> so you could put this game in a bar and didn't matter how drunk you were, you could still play. Uh, and, uh, and so, Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia, backed uh, Atari because the games were popular and they were selling. But at the same time, Atari as a company was an absolute managerial disaster. I mean, there were no financial controls. The board meetings were held in a hot tub. And it was, you know, people would get paid travel expenses before they traveled. And they would just make off with the money and never show up again. Um, you know, on Friday afternoons, people would race to the car park to jump in their cars to get to the bank and cash their paycheck because whoever didn't move fast enough would find there was no money to collect any money, no money left in the bank account. Um, so, you know, most investors would have looked at this mess. They would have visited the factory and inhaled the marijuana smoke that was sort of heavy <laughs> in the air. And they would have said, hey, I, I can't do this. Uh, but Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia, was not intimidated. When they said the board meeting will now take place in the hot tub, he just took his clothes off and got right into that hot tub. By the way, he was a, a former Navy water polo player. So this business of showing off his chest actually probably worked in his favor. <laughs> and because of his physical and intellectual force of character, he basically beat the Atari guys over the head until they had a company that actually did function. And it got to the point where it was functional enough for 
a serious company, Warner Brothers, to buy it, and Sequoia got out with a great profit. So the, the point here is, this is, you know, this is not for the faint of heart. This is, uh, you know, you, you see the glimmer of genius in a creative startup that has got a good team of engineers who are building, um, you know, pioneering video games. You say, I can make something of that, even though the rest of the company is a totally chaotic mess. Um, and, and so that was, that, that was the hands-on. And then the second thing in the 1970s, um, which is you know, equally important, is the idea of investing stage by stage, you know, putting some money in, uh, watching the progress, and then if there is progress, you put some more money in. And the best example here was probably the company Genentech, the first biotech company, uh, which created artificial insulin. And when the Genentech founders tried to raise money, they went to Tom Perkins, uh, the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins, and they asked for half a million dollars to hire scientists, you know, set up a lab and get close to a first product. And Tom Perkins looked at this and he thought, well, look, you know, making the first ever artificial insulin, that is a serious technical challenge. And it's just too much for me to risk uh, half a million dollars on something which is serious frontier technology. So instead of betting, you know, half a million, which would have been painful to lose, he instead invested a hundred thousand bucks and told Genentech to use it to eliminate what he called the, the white hot risks. So in other words, the most obvious things that could just kill the whole idea dead. Uh, and if they could get past the white hot risks with just a hundred thousand, then he would give them some more money uh, and they could go to the next set of risks. And that way, if Genentech was to fail, at least it would fail cheaply. And that idea of stage-by-stage financing turned a company that would have just been too risky and expensive to, to bet money on into something that actually became a very attractive investment. And today, uh, we would think of that really as angel and then seed and then A round, B round, C round, that they were inventing the playbook as they went, it, it didn't exist the way it does today. But let's stay with the concept of these new developments and talk a little bit about the network effect. What took place in Silicon Valley as they progressed to create a network that impacted the entire region? Right. So if we, if we think about the, the arc of the history, um, you know, the, the, the late 50s and 60s is about the idea of liberation capital, as we discussed. The kind of first half of the 70s is about proving these ideas of um, hands-on investing and stage-by-stage financing. And then the next thing that happens is you've got the basic tools, the basic venture capital toolkit. And uh, you layer on top of that an explosion in the number of venture capitalists who are out there using these tools. Um, And what happened is that, you know, there were a couple of uh, tax changes and um, uh, regulatory changes about which kinds of institutions could put money into into venture capital. And suddenly fundraising by VCs went up massively. So, you know, the average in the mid-70s was like $42 million a year. Between 78 and 83, it was 940 million a year. So, 
an enormous increase in the amount of money. And that meant that all of a sudden, there are enough venture capitalists running around Silicon Valley that they fundamentally change the business culture. Everything speeds up. Startups are getting formed faster. There are more of them. More new technologies are getting built. Human talent is circulating from one startup to another one at a higher rate. And all of that creates this flywheel where Silicon Valley becomes just the most productive and creative and inventive innovation cluster in the world. Thanks to, you know, it's great to have a few smart venture capitalists using the basic tools. But when you have a lot of them all running around at the same time, it, 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 it's, it's more than just a few deals. It's a whole culture of taking risk, having the guts to start a new company. All of that becomes enabled by venture capital. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So there's a fascinating tale about how some companies that seem to have a hard time getting funded instead get passed from venture capitalist to venture capitalist rather than just say no. It seems there's this tendency to say, I know somebody who you might be better suited to speak to than me. Tell us a little bit about that network effect and why it makes Silicon Valley such an economic powerhouse. Sure. Well, I think it comes back to this idea I just hinted at a bit earlier as we were talking about how the key to innovative experiments is to have the right people there to to conduct them. And so moving people around a cluster is super important. This is, I mean, just a little digression here, but um, one of the things I was puzzling over as I was working on this book uh, is that, you know, in the economics literature, which I was familiar with, um, when, you, when you wrote about a cluster, as make, when economists talk about clusters, they are talking about, you know, if you put everybody in the same place who does movies in Hollywood or finance in New York or what have you, this is good because, you know, if you want a particular special effects um, actor, you can find them in Hollywood because it's just like exactly the kind of person who jumps out of a four-story window and does a certain kind of, you know, somersault on the way down or whatever. You know, whatever specialty you need in a, in a deep labor market, which will be provided by a cluster, you can find it. And so it's this kind of optimal matching of skills to the needs, which is why clusters work. And that's all very well and quite persuasive, but it doesn't tell you why if you have got two clusters that have the same number of people in each, why would one cluster do better than the other cluster? And that's pretty much what was going on around 1980, 1985, when you compared Silicon Valley to the Boston tech cluster. There was this Route 128 thing. It grew out of the military-industrial complex. There had been these companies like Raytheon and DEC and, and Wang and, and so on. And so there were these two rival 
tech centers in the U.S. And Silicon Valley during the 1980s pulled ahead and absolutely, you know, crushed Boston. Why was that? And the best explanation I could find was uh, from a sociologist, not an economist, um, at Berkeley called Annalise Saxenian, who wrote a book called Regional Advantage, where her story, which I find completely persuasive, is basically that, you know, there were vertically integrated, hierarchical, secretive companies around Boston. And if somebody in a Boston company like Deck or Wang or whatever had a brilliant new idea and the boss didn't like it, the idea was dead. The engineer was not allowed to pursue that idea and the idea would not be leaked to a rival company because everybody was secretive and there was no cross-pollination between these companies. Whereas in Silicon Valley, there was this bubbling cauldron of startups and, you know, people would go to the, there was this, you know, diner kind of bar place called Walker's Wagon Wheel and all the engineers would meet there after work and they would trade ideas about stuff they were working on. Nobody cared about trade secrets. Um, and that meant that you had this circulation of ideas going on. And as we've discussed, there were no non-competes, so you could also move from one company to another. And so the point is, whereas ideas were sort of bottled up in these secretive hierarchies in one cluster, Boston, ideas were circulating, and so were people circulating in the other cluster, Silicon Valley. That's why Silicon Valley won. And what I'm trying to add with my book um, is to put on top of that good work by Annalise Axenian an additional idea, which is to say, okay, so it was the circulation within the cluster, the, the, the fast moving of ideas, people, and money until they reached their optimal use. That's what made Silicon Valley work. That's what made innovation turbocharged. But where did that fast circulation come from? And my argument is it comes from venture capitalists. Venture capitalists are the people who are financially incentivized to get up in the morning, have breakfast with one person who is an entrepreneur that they might fund, and then have 14 cups of coffee before they go to bed with different people because either it's another deal they're trying to do or it is a meeting with somebody that they funded last year and now they need some advice or it's a company that, you know, needs to hire five more engineers and so they're going to interview these the VC is going to interview the engineers. VCs are like the flowers flying around the garden, pollinating the flowers, moving, or the bees, I guess, moving the, the pollen from one flower to another. And, and that's what connects up the cluster, the, the, the network. And that's sort of just super important for getting all the limited resources of people and ideas and money into the right mixtures to create really fertile experiments that make um, the valley work. And so... Uh, I, I think, you know, in, you know, I'm not sure I've given you quite the answer you wanted, but in a general way, the key thing about venture capital networks is that they connect up networks and they transform their productivity. Huh, really interesting. Let, let's talk about two other developments in the venture world, speed and size. And, and, and let's start with size, talking about SoftBank. When, when they came to California from Japan, their approach was we have very deep pockets and we want to give you not just a few hundred thousand dollars or a few million dollars, but here's a hundred million dollars. And if you don't take our money, 
We're going to go to your competitor and offer them $100 million. There's only room in this space for one of you, and whoever takes our money wins. Tell us a little bit about the impact and advantage of size. Right. So that's a story you're, you're, you're alluding to of the financing of Yahoo uh, when Masayoshi Son came and made exactly that proposal. Basically, you know, to, he said to, to Jerry Yang of Yahoo, um, I'll write you a check for $100 million. And when Jerry Yang said, I don't want it, I don't need it, he said, Jerry, everybody needs $100 million, And if you don't take it, I'll finance your competitor. Um, and what was sort of, you know, the significance of that moment was partly that the VC who had funded Yahoo in the Series A round was Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital, who was just then emerging as sort of the, the leader of Sequoia, along with Doug Leone, his, his partner. And Moritz took away from that experience an absolutely firm determination that um, he wouldn't be muscled again. He wouldn't allow somebody to come in and say, you know, this is a take it or leave it offer. This is an offer you can't refuse. You know, Don Corleone style. He, you know, he, he was going to avoid that. And that is why Sequoia in the late 1990s started to try to get its own big check writing capability off the ground. In other words, a growth fund, which wouldn't just be doing, as you say, 5 million, 10 million checks to Series A, Series B, but would be writing much bigger checks Series C, Series D, uh, to companies and allowing them um, to to carry on growing before going public. Now, you can see the logic, right, that if, if one player like Masayoshi Son from SoftBank has that godfather-like ability, you know, take it or leave it, um, uh, others are going to want to muscle up and get that capability as well. Whether it's good for the venture capital system is a different question. I'm not sure it is, because I think that at a certain point, going public brings transparency to uh, tech companies, and that can be healthy. I don't think that staying private for too long is necessarily the best way to govern tech companies. All right, so that's the size discussion. Let's talk about speed, uh, and, and in particular, Tiger Global. Who, who seems to be investing at a, a record pace and, and forcing the rest of the VC industry to, to keep up. Is this a smart way to make investments? And, and what are the ramifications of this emphasis on speed? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I spent some time with Tiger Global when I was doing the research, and I, and I talked to the, the, the two leaders, Chase Coleman and Scott Schleifer, Quite, quite a bit. Uh, and I, I respect them a lot. And I, you know, they're very smart investors and they've built an amazing company. And I think the critics outside who say, you know, this is just purely throwing money at the wall are, are exaggerating because I think, you know, these guys are smarter than that. But um, I actually don't think that what they're doing is particularly healthy for the technology ecosystem. I think, you know, it's better when capital you know, is a bit tougher to raise, investors cannot be taken for granted. And if you want money, you need to be you know, transparent, responsible, and have a convincing plan about how you're going to use the money. And 
I think Tiger probably does a, a much better job than most at being able to combine some sense of what they're investing in speed, right? Because they've got a whole machine which uh, has figured out which kind of, which, which sort of segments of the tech space they believe are going to do well, who are the market leaders in those uh, spaces. I mean, they do it almost by a matrix, right? They have this, you know, here are the, here are the 10 technologies we think are going to uh, thrive. Here are the number one and number two players in each space. We're going to back the two leaders because we think that this is generally a winner takes all. So one of the top two is going to win. Um, and, and if you tick those boxes, then we don't really need to ask any more questions. We know we want to invest in you and we will move incredibly fast to beat the competition. And we will not weigh you down. If you're the CEO, we know and we understand you don't want your investor chewing up your time because you've got other stuff to do. Um, so that's their playbook. It works for them. It's a good competitive tool. It probably works for their investors. I don't think it's healthy for the, for the tech world as a whole because I think you end up forcing others to be fast, which means they don't do due diligence, which means there's just a kind of uh, a race to write checks, and that's not thoughtful. It's not you know, discriminating as between good companies and bad companies. And I think in the end, that just inflates bubbles, and, and we may be feeling that right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So we already discussed power laws, which are the non-typical bell curve distribution where it's a, a tiny percentage of the sample set are responsible for the vast majority uh, of the performance. Uh, let's talk about some other laws that come up, starting with Moore's Law. Tell us a little bit about Moore's Law. Well, Gordon Moore was the... Uh one of the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, the company we started by discussing. And then he went on to be a co-founder of Intel. And he made this observation, which wasn't really a law, it was just an empirical observation about this is how things were working, is that you know semiconductors would double in power every two years. And that's sort of one example of something which some venture capitalists refer to uh, as tech beta. In other words... <laughs> If you can invest in a company that is making something using semiconductors and you know that the semiconductor is going to become twice as powerful two years from now, you know that whatever you're making is going to improve in performance and quality and its ability to delight consumers. Just because of Moore's law is, is, is kind of like the wind at your back. So you can invest in things, and, and if you're skating to where the puck will be, um, you know you know that you may be not making much of a margin on the product today, but in two years' time, the component in your gadget will be twice as powerful, and you'll be able to either charge more for it, or maybe you'll you know, use fewer of the semiconductors in the gadget because each one is twice as powerful, but you'll have that technological change 
in your favor. And it's just, you know, that's one of the reasons why venture investing can generate these incredible returns of 20x, 30x, you know, your money, because there is this technological progress uh, driving the you know, exponential takeoff of your returns. So if Moore's Law is the beta, is just the background increase in, in capability, let's talk about Metcalf's Law and the value of networks. Tell us about that. So um, Bob Metcalf was an engineer who invented the uh, Ethernet cable uh, to link up computers to devices or link up computers to each other and this was the start of local area networks, which came before the Internet. And he, in fact, started a company called 3Com to, to market his Ethernet invention. And that's one of the stories I tell in my book that illustrates very nicely the way that you know, he, he bust his uh, proverbial trying to raise money from East Coast venture capitalists because he came from Boston and he didn't like the West Coast gang. And he ended up coming back with his tail between his legs and raising West Coast venture capital because they were the guys who, who really understood risk and were willing to, to back him. Um, but he, Bob Metcalf, had this observation as he was building um, Ethernet cables that created networks of computers that the value of the network would rise as the square of the number of users. So um, if you think about... Um, you know, I, I've got a computer and um, I'm linked up to one other computer, my co-worker's computer. Uh, now there are two of us on the network. Let's say my value is the square of two, it's four. Now, if you put two more people into our network, so we've got four people, we didn't, that's doubling the number of computers on the network, but actually the, the value to me, um, now that I can talk to three other computers and they can talk to each other, is actually 16. It's gone. It's squared. It hasn't doubled. And that's a story that, you know, applies to any kind of network. So when you get to the internet and you're building any kind of social media net company or, or a, a platform like eBay to do auctions or anything that you're building on top of the internet where you're recruiting more and more users, you get these network effects where the more people sign up, the more valuable it is to everybody else on the network. And it's just an enormous tailwind. I mean, it's like Moore's Law, but even more dramatic. And of course, the key thing here is that it wasn't an either-or for uh, venture capitalists who were backing you know, companies like eBay. This was both and. You know, you had the advantage of uh, Moore's Law, which meant that the hardware that you were using was becoming twice as powerful every couple of years. And you had the power of Metcalfe's law, which said that as you grew the network, um, the value of the network was rising uh, as the square of the number of people you recruited. And so these, you know, I call this sort of, you know, turbo power law companies, companies like eBay that just did extraordinarily well in the 90s and made enormous amounts of money for Benchmark, which was the, the VC partnership that backed eBay. Huh. And one of the laws we didn't talk about is Perkins' law. Tell us about, I believe that's the Perkin of Kleiner Perkin. What is Perkins' law? Yes, yeah, so um, the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins, Tom Perkins, who was a wonderfully flamboyant figure, you know, who would be criticized occasionally for his unbelievable extravagance. Um, and he would say things like, you know, 
hey, I'm the king of Silicon Valley. Why can't I have the biggest penthouse in San Francisco? <laughs> or, 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 or equivalent comments like that. Uh, he was he was unashamed about you know roaring up in his Ferrari outside some crummy little startup he just funded, and you know, he'd screwed them for every dollar on the deal. But there he was in his Ferrari. And anyway, Perkins's law stated a very simple idea, but it's quite profound, which is that technical risk is inversely proportional to business risk. Because if you solve a really hard technical problem, you're not going to face much competition from business competitors because they don't know how to solve your problem. So if you've got a company where, you know, let's say it's Genentech, and they're going to they're saying we're the first biotech company, we're going to solve um, for this challenge of building artificial insulin. No one's ever done anything like this before. It's super difficult. So that's a huge technical challenge. So it's very risky to fund it. But if you manage to make the artificial insulin, you're going to have a big competitive moat. People will not be able to come after you and compete because, you know, you've done something technically hard. Uh, and therefore, you can charge a big margin on that product. On the other hand, if you've got something which is simple to build, it's just an app, um, then the business risk is going to be much more intense. The competition from people coming into your space is going to be much higher. And, and to do a little compare and contrast, obviously any sort of DNA manipulation when Genentech first began uh, was unprecedented. On the other hand, what did Yahoo own? They essentially were just a little early to, to manually telling people what they might want to look at on the Internet, but there was no technological moat there. That's right. I mean, it was two PhD students who actually were not doing something particularly technical. They were just compiling lists of wacky websites that they found amusing and growing and growing that list and doing it, as you say, mostly by hand. So there was, you know, to, to apply Perkins's law to that, there was not much technical risk, because obviously manual compilation of website lists is easy, but there was a huge amount of business and commercial risk because other people could compete. So let's talk about some other people who compete with uh, Yahoo. I, I love the story of angel investors typically described as successful uh, executives or entrepreneurs who have already had their exit from their their first company or second company, and they're bored and they have uh, big checkbooks and they want to keep their fingers in the pie. They want to stay involved in technology, and so they'll write checks to startups to really be, give them their very beginning. Who wrote the $100,000 check to Google where the Google founders said, hey, this check is made out to Google Inc. We're not even incorporated. We don't have a bank account yet. <laughs> yeah, that was a funny story. So Andy Bestelstein, the legendary Valley uh, engineer who was one of the co-founders of Sun Microsystems back in the, in the 1980s and had done you know, pretty well. He'd, he'd done Sun. He'd done his own, another company after that. He had plenty of money. He wasn't bored, by the way, because he... He was still running a company, uh, but he was fascinated by up-and-coming technologies um, and, and young entrepreneurs who kind of reminded himself, reminded him of himself when he had been starting Sun. And um, so he heard about, uh, you know, Larry 
and Sergey, the two uh, Google founders. And he came over to meet them one day. And, you know, this, as this was described to me, you know, he, he, he roars up in his silver Porsche, you know, jumps out, watches a demo uh, of how Google uh, can search for results much better than any other product on the market at the time. And he says, wow, that's cool, great. You know, here's a $100,000 check. And he just writes it right there, you know, just <laughs> runs to his Porsche, you know, gets the, gets the checkbook out, rushes back, says, Google Inc., 100000 bucks. there you go. And, you know, as you say, Larry and Sergey, the founders, are saying, we don't have a bank account. He says, fine, you know, stick the check in there when you do have a bank account. Whatever, it doesn't matter. And then he leaves. So he hasn't asked, you know, what, how many shares he just bought in the company, what the terms of the deal were, nothing. He just writes the check and he drives off. And, you know, $100,000 to Andy Besselstein, you know, he'd done two successful companies. That wasn't a big bite out of his bank balance. But, you know, he just sprayed the money. And um, that didn't happen, of course, in the early period of Silicon Valley because there wasn't enough entrepreneurs who'd made the cash to be able to do that. But as you get into the 90s and even more later on, um, there were people who could write those checks and they enjoyed doing it. And, you know, typically what would happen is nobody would have a clue, you know, what share of the company Andy Bettelsheim had bought. But when the more serious, more deliberative next investment round took place, somebody would sit down and say, well, what do we think that that's worth? And they would kind of award some number of shares to, to Bettelsheim. And he, you know, he wasn't really counting, but no doubt he made, you know, <laughs> more money on, on whatever number of shares he got in Google. That's probably end up being worth more to him than Sun Microsystems had been. Yeah, and he did okay, it turned out. So a lot of the famed venture capitalists who, who really put together a string of astounding performance in the 1980s and 90s, they haven't done as well since. Uh, what are your thoughts as to why the the star funds from, from the early days of VC have been lagging over the past decade or two? Not all of them are lagging, but you're right that some do. And I think there's a couple of problems that come up. You know, one is a succession problem where um, there isn't a good mechanism for handing control from the senior partners who are maybe, you know, getting to a point where they might think about retiring, but they don't really want to retire yet. The younger people are maybe plugged into the new technology, the younger entrepreneurs, uh, and they really ought to be taking over control. But the senior people don't want to cede that control, and then there's a fight about who gets what, and, and that, that can wind up you know, causing a, a partnership to break up. Another kind of issue, though, is actually a problem of success, where a partnership does really well. All the general partners who have a share of the carry are suddenly wealthy enough to go off and start their own venture partnerships by themselves if they want to. And they're kind of sick of putting up with each other and they split up. And, you know, a good illustration of this um, is Kleiner Perkins, uh, which was absolutely the top venture partnership, um, uh, you know, circa 2000, you know, the um, top moneymaker at Kleiner Perkins in 2001 uh, was Vino Kostler, who was the number one on the Forbes Midas list. And then there was John Doerr, who was the number three 
on the Forbes Midas list, uh, if I call correctly, um, that year. So you have the number one and the number three VC in the whole world, and they're at the same partnership. They are an absolute dream team. And then there's a bunch of people around them who are also good and who have been them, with them you know, for, for a decade or so, and they know each other well enough that they can kind of challenge each other and be the check and the balance if somebody is getting too enthusiastic and over their skis about a potential investment, the other people in the partnership have the standing and the stature to say, wait a second, you know, just, just take a deep breath here and, and think hard before you do that, because I'm not sure I agree with you. And just kind of Perkins got to a point where around 2003, 2004, so just a couple of years after their peak, um, people started to leave and they made so much money that they could go off and do their own fund. And Vinod Kosler left and started um, Kosler Ventures, his own company. And a few other people left and started their own company. And John Doerr was sort of left standing. And there was nobody around him with quite the stature to challenge him. And at that point, he fastened on to the idea of clean tech, the, you know, investing in clean technologies. And I think if he had had the right culture around him of a proper partnership where people could challenge him, he might have been a bit more cautious about the way he went into that, but he didn't. At that point, he was head and shoulders the most prestigious and successful investor in the partnership, and he just ran with it too far, too fast. Um, and he did the same thing, by the way, in another good cause. I mean, clean tech is a good cause in terms of saving the planet. He also wanted to advance women, and he promoted women. And that was a good thing. And in fact, some of the women, you know, went on to be extraordinarily good investors. Um, you know, Aileen Lee comes to mind. She's the one who invented the term uh, unicorn. Um, but they didn't become successful investors very much internally within Kinder Perkins, because although John Doerr was good at promoting women, he was not good at creating a culture amongst the rest of his partners that would really make it possible for those women to thrive. Huh. So Kleiner Perkins wound up with a sexual harassment suit. I recall. It wound up with, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I should say that um, they, uh, they, I think they, they got the upper hand in the verdict on that trial, although it was a bit of a messy one. But um, so, you know, stipulating that in their favor. But, they, but it, it turned out to be difficult to build the culture in a new way that allowed women to thrive. And it also turned out to be hard to make money off cleantech in the first iteration of cleantech. And so Kleiner Perkins went from being, you know, consistently ranked number one to being not even in the top 10. It was really quite a precipitous decline. Really? Uh, and I think that that has to do with, you know, you need to pay attention to the, to the glue within the partnership. You can't just be out investing in other companies and making sure that they have good governance. You need to look at your own company and your own internal governance. Huh, really, really interesting. Let, let's talk about a, a venture fund that has probably, since the, the decline of Kleiner Perkins, uh, become the hottest VC in Silicon Valley, and that would be A16Z and Andreessen Horowitz. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on them. The, the past few years, they seem to be very focused on crypto and blockchain. What are your thoughts on, on, on Mark Andreessen and, and Ben Horowitz? And what they've built. Yeah, it's funny. When you were saying, you know, the hottest uh, partnership in, in Silicon Valley, I thought you were about to introduce uh, Sequoia Capital, 
uh, I think they have probably got the, the, the best returns, and they've also scaled globally. Um, they've got and they're one of the oldest, right? Sequoia goes all the way back uh, to to the 80s, right? Yes, so they're not. That's right. So if you're talking about the hottest new entrant, then I agree with you. Anyway, let's talk about A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, uh, I just wanted to give a mention uh, of Sequoia. Um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, um, I think, you know, started out in 2009. They had a bunch of public relations around what was going to make them distinctive. I'm not sure that that anything they said there was really the key to why they did well. I think they did well because both Mark Andreessen, who of course was the uh, one of the key engineers, or maybe the key engineer behind Netscape uh, and and the first graphical um, web browser. Uh, so he was a, a towering computer scientist. And then Ben Horowitz, who himself was uh, a terrific computer scientist, had also founded uh, a company and despite the 2000 tech crash, had soldiered through that and made it you know, into a successful exit. So you had two really, really strong founding partners in Andreessen Horowitz. And they were both computer scientists. And they founded in 2009, right about the time when, you know, the iPhone had come on stream, cloud computing uh, was taking off, and software, to quote Andreessen's famous phrase, was about to eat the world. In other words, software was just going to displace uh, all kinds of other uh, technologies as the way to build value. Um, and so you have these two founders, they really understand coding. They know which coders are the best. The coders respect them. And so they're happy to take their capital. And that, I think, explains how they got into companies like Nasira, um, Okta. Um, some of the, you know, they, they did a great turnaround deal with Skype, um, the, the voice over IP telephony company. Um, so they, I think it, I think it was about having these these two strong individuals who were who were really strong on the hottest technology of all, namely coding. They're now moving and innovating, and I think that's impressive. They're moving. Uh, they move strongly into crypto and and blockchain and and Web three. And I think what's fascinating to watch there is that you know Web three is kind of at its its 1993 moment in terms of internet time, where, you know, in 1993, the internet was something that, um, you know, a few early adopters were really passionate about and excited by. But you hadn't got to the killer app, namely uh, Netscape, the, the graphical browser, which turned the internet into something that mainstream consumers would actually want. And now with Web3, you're at the same point, I would say. You know, you've got some gaming stuff that's, that's, that's breaking out, but it's still in a world where it hasn't quite gone mainstream in, despite all the buzz. And I think we're looking for the killer app that really establishes this as, as you know, a, a, a totally mainstream product. And what Andreessen Horowitz are doing is that they've put enough capital into a crypto, blockchain, Web3-focused pot of money that they can really experiment with, with backing lots of, you know, lots of ventures, one of which would probably be the Netscape 
as it were, for Web3. Uh, I don't think they've found it, or we don't know if they have found it. Sometimes you can only see these things in retrospect, but it's one of the most interesting stories going on right now in Silicon Valley. Hmm. Really, really interesting. Um, so we, we talk a lot about uh, VC successes, and we talk about the power law distribution, but one of the things we haven't really discussed weren't just the companies that didn't make it, you know, we could look at uh, MoviePass or Quibi or Pets.com or whatever, but the ones that just blow up spectacularly. And and I'm not so much looking at Uber or WeWork as I am Theranos, which really appears to be a, uh, a fraud. Uh, how do you draw the distinction between um, an idea that just doesn't catch fire the way it was hoped with outright you know, deception and, hey, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, just convicted on four counts of, of defrauding investors. How does one make that distinction? Well, I think fraud is pretty clearly different from just not making money, right? I mean, when you actually misrepresent your product, you claim that your blood test is done with your machine, but actually you're using right. some other machine you bought from another company. The results are phony, I mean, that is just crossing a line. Um, I mean, people sometimes when they're criticizing Silicon Valley and trying to use Theranos as a way of um, saying it's, you know, this is just a, a sign of how corrupt Silicon Valley is, they kind of blur that distinction between outright fraud and simply business failure. But I think it's, a you know, actually it's a pretty clear difference between, on the one hand, you know, you set out to make a product and the product either can't be built because it's too technically difficult or you build it but nobody wants it so you don't get any revenue. Those are just business failures. But right. but if you lie, you're crossing a line. Yeah, and, and that was just not more than just an occasional lie. That was a consistent pattern uh, of, of fraud and misrepresentation. And uh, I, I completely agree with you. You can't lump the two uh, together, uh, regular business failure and and fraud. So so before we get to our favorite questions, I have I have one last curveball I have to throw at you, which is something pretty fascinating I learned about you when I was doing a little homework. When you were in your twenties, your your father was the UK ambassador to Germany, and uh, for for five years, and then his next gig was. UK ambassador to France. Tell us about that experience. How did that shape your view of history? I know you studied history uh, at, at Oxford. What was being the son of an ambassador like for someone who is, you know, delving into that space? <laughs> well, by the time my dad became an ambassador, you know, I was in my 20s and I was uh, off being a foreign correspondent in Africa. And in fact, there's a funny story because, you know, I, I, I actually lived in Zimbabwe. I made that my base and I roamed around different African countries. And um, in November of 1989, uh, there was the election in Namibia to elect the first majority rule government. So it was the end of white minority rule and the start of, of majority rule. And this election was being overseen by the United Nations. There was this absolutely massive, you know, foreign presence there, historic occasion, the end of colonial 
the colonial political setup, and all of the press pack that was covering this election in Namibia, me included, thought, great, you know, we're Africa correspondents. Normally we get onto page 15 of the newspaper if we're lucky, but now finally we're going to be on the front page. Great. And on the day that the Namibian election result was announced, the wall came down. Uh, and, you know, all of these Africa correspondents were on page 15 again, if they were lucky. <laughs> and so it was funny for me because there I was, you know, my story had been killed, but whatever. My dad's story, you know, he was the UK ambassador in Germany. That was the story that the whole wide world was, was talking about. And, um, you know, he told me afterwards that he flew straight into Berlin where the wall was coming down and he realized that, you know, that was the end of the Cold War and, and, and that was, you know, a super exciting moment for him. So uh, I don't know if it shaped my view of history directly, but um, it, it did make for a funny family story. Yeah, to say, <laughs> to say the very least. So let's jump uh, in our last few minutes to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, starting with, what have you been streaming these days? What has kept you entertained during lockdown when you weren't researching or writing the book? So uh, I think like uh, probably a lot of people who listen to your show, I love Succession, um, the kind of, you know, quasi-Murdoch uh, family drama. Um, I also have quite enjoyed a couple of French um series my 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 mother was french and um maybe that's why but there's call my agent which Love is it. all about yeah yeah that's fun it's about a um movie uh agency uh, I, uh, by agency, the way yeah. i always have to tell my um american friends that i recommend that to that the people who play the actors on that show are actually very famous french actors but to an American, they just look like another French person in the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, if you don't know that, you know, for us, if we would have a Brad Pitt or a Matt Damon show up on a show about, you know, talent agents, uh, everyone in America would know who they are. When, when you watch, and I think the French version is called 10%, but when you watch that show... Um, and it's how my wife and I keep our French uh, uh, passable. Um, it's always interesting to see the actual actors who show up. But I interrupted you. Who? What? What else have you been streaming besides uh, Succession? So, so and the Cold other, my the Agent? other French one I enjoyed for a while was uh, is a, is a kind of um, it's called Le Bureau, and it's about the uh, French secret uh, service, like the CIA, the French CIA, and they're fighting all kinds of wars all over the Middle East, and um, it's sort of exciting. Uh, my, my wife likes it because the French uh, secret agents are, you know, devastatingly good-looking, uh, and I tolerate that but <laughs> because the female leads are quite good, too. I, I um, but, you know, it, it has a lot of good French uh, suspense, and, and we've enjoyed that as well. Huh, very interesting. Tell us about your early mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, I joined The Economist, as I was saying at the beginning, right out of college, and there were just a, a terrific group of talented people there who uh, helped me. And I, I remember, you know, there was Neil Harmon, who was um, one of the, the older journalists, 
who was incredibly good mentor and and I, I would file a copy and he would say, you know, he would tip his 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 half moon spectacles down his nose, look look over them at me and say, just 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 come sit here for a minute, and he I would watch him edit my words on the screen and just add topspin more and more topspin. You know, he just had this knack for for turning a reasonable phrase into a good phrase. And that that gave me a kind of special appreciation for the magic of of really, you know, the craftsmanship of writing. Um and but, you know, in other ways too, there were there were colleagues who just thought globally. Um they thought across finance and politics and economics. Um they could handle big ideas without getting um, sort of bogged down in detail, but they were also serious about being accurate. It was, I would say that the whole experience of spending 12 years or 13 years on the staff of The Economist was, was my formative experience. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about books besides your own. What are some of your favorites and, and what are you reading right now? Well, an old favorite, which I, I often mention, is um, is The Money Game. Have you read that? Adam Smith, sure. Yeah, of course. I thought you would have done. Um, and I mean, it's just, you know, full of laugh out loud caricatures of these people in the 1960s go-go bull market when side-burned gunslingers were ramping stocks. And, and, and it's, it's just a, it's kind of, you know, Financial writing as comedy, and uh, I always enjoyed that. Um, more recently, I've been reading a novel called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, have you read that? you know that book? No, not familiar. So it's, it's, I'm not a great novel reader, but this one is so well done. It's captivating. It's a long saga of um, four... New Yorkers who graduate college, they go to college together, they come to the city and they, they make their lives in different professions and there's a sort of a bit of a, you know, a really engrossing tragedy at the center of the life of, of the main character. That's a novel, but in terms of nonfiction, um, a bit late, I read um, Sheila Kolhatka's Black Edge sure. about SAC. I thought that was incredibly well done, sort of suspense story about a hedge fund that goes wrong. Um, and um, I enjoyed Black Gold. Uh, I think it's, I'm getting right. Uh, um, Digital Gold, maybe it's called, sorry. Um, and that's Nathaniel Popper's book about Bitcoin. Oh, sure. That, and that's been out for about five, six years wrong. already, right? Yeah, that's right. Again, I was a bit late to that, but I, it basically it tells the story of how Bitcoin got traction because different waves of enthusiasts got on board. So there were the coders who loved the code because it was elegant. There were the libertarians who liked it for political reasons. 
there were the people who wanted to do criminal deals in drugs and and um, and guns and so forth. That was the Silk Road thing. There were Latin Americans who wanted to remit money back to Argentina. Um, then there were the entrepreneurs who showed up and said, hey, we could do a wallet or build some, some business on top of all this. And I don't think, frankly, my own perspective, I don't think any of these individual groups had a killer argument as to why the world really needed Bitcoin. But cumulatively, they created enough momentum that it stuck, and I think it's now here to stay. Huh. Really, really intriguing. And, and our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either finance, investment, or journalism and book writing? <laughs> so on the journalism and book writing, um, I, I have a standard line, which, which I, I, I roll out because people ask me this quite a bit. And essentially, I try to dissuade people <laughs> because I think you've got to really, really want to do it um, if, if you're going to go in that direction. And, you know, if people listen to what I say and then they do it anyway, I'm delighted. Um, but I think there's kind of a thing where, you know, people go to college, they enjoy their work in college, they write papers in college, and they think, how can I extend this and just do more of the same? And they don't necessarily look left and right and think about other things they could be doing with their talent. And I think it's good to experiment and, 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 and do other stuff. And then if you decide that you actually really do want to write because you like the process of writing, even though it's solitary, even though it's, you know, a huge amount of time to produce something of value. I mean, my books do take me five years and it's, it's a lot of rejection when you're beginning a new project and people think, why would I talk to some book writer who, you know, who knows if this book will even come out and I have to try to network my way in. And, you know, by the end, of course, the thing flips and, you know, you've got enough momentum that people that you didn't call are now calling you because they want to talk to you because they understand your book is going to be serious and make an impact. But, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not all plain sailing. Um, and um, so I, I try and dissuade people, but then I'm happy if they, if they do it anyway. If you, someone were to ask you about a, uh, a, a job on Wall Street, what would you say to them? I think Wall Street qua Wall Street is a bit, you know, is, is, is regulated. It's the main feature of it. So if you're a lawyer, that's great. Um, if you're an investor or an entrepreneur, it's not great. Um, you might want to go to a fintech instead or go to you know, a hedge fund, um, which is still a bit less regulated and where, you know, you can you can really try to apply original thinking to markets. Huh. Um, yeah. And, and our final question, what do you know about the world of finance, journalism, markets, investing today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first uh, starting out? I think what I've learned is that the way investors think um, is actually quite useful for life. Uh, and you know, when I was writing my book about hedge funds, the, the central, uh, I guess, epistemological discovery was this idea of asymmetric payouts that, you know, sometimes you don't know if you're right or you don't know if you're wrong about a certain call. But what you should look at is if you were to be right, would the payout be bigger 
than the loss would be if you were wrong. So there are things where, you know, you, you don't know if this is the right direction to go in, but but you should give it a shot because because if it works, it's going to be big. Um, and that's, you know, a basic thing about a lot of macro investing in hedge funds is the best basic thing about, you know, you bet against a currency peg. If you're wrong, the peg isn't going to move because the peg won't break, so you won't lose much on your position. But if you're right, the peg collapses, it's going to move 20%. You're going to make a huge killing. So this is a this is a basic macro investing hedge fund strategy, but it's also a, a useful thing for life about life decisions. And in the same way, you know, with venture capital, I think the power law idea that, you know, sometimes low probability but high consequence uh, bets are worth trying, that, you know, rather than following the pack, you should try and do something different. Um, uh, maybe I like this argument because when I go off and bury myself in some specialized corner of finance for five years, you know, I feel a bit like I'm taking myself away from mainstream debates to really get specialized and deep on one niche. Um, but I think, I think it is healthy to, to have those ideas in mind and think about how to differentiate yourself, how to do something risky, but that might have a really good outcome if you get it right. Huh, really intriguing. Uh, Sebastian, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Sebastian Malaby, author of The Power Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of the New Future. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous, I keep saying 400, uh, we probably crossed that already, 400 or so prior interviews where uh, we discuss all things uh, finance-related. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Bloomberg, wherever you get your uh, podcast from. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast.bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Mark Sinascalci is my audio engineer. Paris Walt is my producer. Sean Russo is my research assistant. Atika Valbron is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.